Welcome to the Overnight Trainer Podcast, where each week we talk about all things related to the world of learning and development, including facilitation, instructional design, sales enablement, and so much more. I'm your host, Sarah Canistra, and I'm an L&D strategist and career coach, and I'm here to take the guesswork out of becoming an L&D professional and show you how to unlock continued success in your learning and development career. I'm on a mission to quickly develop the next generation of L&D leaders who are looking to create meaningful and engaging learning experiences. So, if you're looking to transition into L&D for the first time, have found yourself accidentally in a training position, or are working up the ranks as an L&D professional already, you've come to the right place. Welcome back to another episode of the Overnight Trainer Podcast. I am so excited that you're here. Today, I am joined by a great friend and mentor of mine. And before we dive deep into the episode, I do want to highlight some big wins that my clients have had. I just posted this on LinkedIn. So if you're following me over there, you might have seen this. But during time, during this time of the year, you know, a lot of people stop looking for jobs or they feel that hiring is slowing down because of the holidays. And in fact, in my experience, This is actually the time of year when budgets have just been approved and positions are posted. And my clients are, are, there really are proof of that. So in the last two weeks, I had one client sign on for her first ever instructional design contract, another win an account management contract, and a third get promoted to a national learning and development role overseeing programming. So this holiday season, I am so grateful for them. I'm so happy to see them in their new roles. And this can be you. So don't wait until the new year to start. I am personally taking on new clients right now. So you can head on over to theovernighttrainer.com slash coaching and schedule your free consultation call today. I'd love to start working with you and I'd love to see you in a new role, a new L&D role in 2021, in early 2021. Now let's dive into today's episode with workplace learning changemaker, Crystal Kadakia. Crystal is a two-time TEDx speaker. She's an international keynoter and a best-selling author. She is known for transforming the toughest workplace challenges into exciting possibilities for our digital world. As an organizational development consultant, Crystal brings companies into the digital age. She changes people and organizations one at a time. Crystal is the co-founder of the OKLCD Learning Model, which is an intentional learning framework for selecting, designing, and facilitating access to learning. And she's the co-author of my favorite L&D book, Designing for Modern Learning Beyond Addie and Sam. She's here to share her journey from starting as an engineer to becoming a leading voice in today's L&D world. All right, Crystal, welcome to the Overnight Trainer Podcast. I'm so excited to have you on. Same. So glad that you invited me, Sarah. Awesome. Well, I want to dive right in because you have a really, really interesting backstory and story of how you got into L&D. So I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about you, your background, your journey into L&D. Tell us all about it. Yeah, sure. So yeah, pretty different. I actually, so I studied chemical engineering in college and right out of school, got an engineering job, was working for a major company and three years go by and in those three years i'm spending a lot of my time working on things like onboarding i was working on the new hire network um and at my company there was this thing where you work on projects related to your 
your real job and you also work on projects related to building organizational culture. And I had my hands in both ponds. <laughs> and I started realizing that, wow, I really have a love for working with people and working on people-related challenges. And um, actually, a big turning point for me was taking strengths finders because you can imagine um, as an engineer, if you take strengths finders with other engineers, there's going to be particular set of strengths. Right. Well, I did that and I did it with the Asian community within engineering. And it was like, we were night and day different. I was like a relator, developer, Harmony, I think my, was my number one at that time. Um, and everyone else was like analytical, you know, <laughs> like very different. And so that actually gave me the really big aha, like maybe I'm not in the right field and I just wanted to help people. And so I was really lucky that at that same company, this role opened up to be a training manager um, for the engineering function. And um, I stepped into that role uh, and that was pretty interesting because at that company, actually a lot of people just volunteered and stepped up to work on capability development. It's because they have a passion for it and they didn't necessarily have a training background. So that's kind of how I got, got into the whole world of L&D and people strategies and um, human capital in general. That's awesome. So almost like a volunteer opportunity came up, but for a paid job. <laughs> yeah, it actually is seen as kind of as like the retirement role, like the place where engineers go to work on their passion and then they leave the company. That's how it was kind of seen in that company. <laughs> so um, to have someone... And how, and how old were you when this happened? <laughs> yeah, I was like 23, 24. <laughs> so it's like, I, I'm not retiring yet, but I just love this stuff. That's awesome. So when you transitioned into L&D, what did you have to do to prepare for that career change, a total kind of switch, a 180? So I was really lucky because, um, as I mentioned, in this company, other people had made the same kind of leap. It was pretty common for someone who had no training background to lead training for a function just because it was their passion. And I met someone who was actually retiring. They were on their way out. And it's my colleague, Lisa Owens, um, who you, I'm sure I'll mention later on because we work closely together even now. Yep. Um, she was on her way out of the company and I was stepping into this role and she had actually transitioned from R&D to L&D um, way early in her career. And she was someone who actually got a master's in education, got the company to pay for it. She was the first person to do that um, because she was like, yeah, you know, I volunteered, but, you know, just because I'm in this role doesn't mean I'm not going to have the knowledge and capability to do it. So knowing somebody really helped because she pointed me towards, um, it was ASTD at the time, but Association for Talent Development, ATD. And I started going to their chapter meetings. She had uh, books that she was like, you know, fundamentally, these are the ones you need to read. And so for anyone out there, the set I would still recommend is uh, Robert Major's Six Pack. And he goes through the fundamentals of Addy, you know, in this six pack. And it was, that was super helpful. Um, so yeah, not to say that you can totally transition to L&D by just going to a few meetings and reading some books. Sometimes it feels that way, but <laughs> I think that <laughs> definitely set me off on the right track along with 
than just really putting my problem solving skills to use in a, in a different field. Um, and, and sorry to make this a long answer, but that's probably no, that's great. One, one other thing I would recommend is to think about what strengths you're bringing with you from, especially if you made the, make this kind of leap from another field to L&D. Um, like from an engineering standpoint, problem solving was 80% of what we learned in, in school. So it was like, okay, how can I use that in, in this new capacity? That's awesome. That's something I actually, a lot of my clients right now that I'm coaching uh, that are making those career changes from whatever it may be into L&D, that's something we, t- we pause at and look at when we first start working together is what are those transferable skills? Because what's so great about L&D is that when you have those real life skills from whether it's engineering or accounting or whether you're a teacher you know, in K through 12 education, there's so many different transferable skills that we can use to our advantage in L&D. And it doesn't mean you don't want to learn the fundamentals and you don't want to learn you know, what is out there as far as creating great learning experiences, but so much of it can be what you've learned before in your past life, uh, your past working life, and being able to look at how do I utilize that now in the L&D function. So I think that's really an awesome point that you make there is looking back and saying, all right, what did I know how to do? I knew how to problem solve and how can I bring that in to L&D? So that's awesome. So when you made the transition from engineering to L&D, what was something that was unexpected about that role? That was a really good question. Um, something that was unexpected, I would probably, I would say that there are probably two things. Um, one that was really unexpected and a very pleasant surprise is that uh, I had such a huge level of ownership. Um, and I think this happens a lot because oftentimes L&D teams are small. And so you end up being responsible for a lot. So I ended up re- redesigning um, the new hire program, new hire technical training program globally. And uh, the company I work for is really large. And so the, the, num- the amount of impact that was, was, was huge. And I was the only decision maker, really. Like, however I wanted to design it, I could. There, was, there wasn't a lot of red tape to get that approved. And so that might not be the same for every L&D role, right. but I do think a lot of times you have a lot of ownership and responsibility. And that was a really pleasant surprise. And, and not having the red tape to be able to experiment, that was a really nice surprise. Um, and it was a great, it made it a really great learning ground. Uh, I think the other thing that was a surprise was just how much, um, like how to balance the SME, the subject matter expert input with my own intuition and with learner intuition. So like talking to, uh, end users and, and SMEs and myself and like kind of putting all those pieces together. I think that was a little bit of a surprise or an unexpected um, balancing act, I think, that I, I didn't necessarily think about going into the role. When you when that started happening, you know, the, the relationship between the subject matter expert and yourself, and I think you too, obviously, being a subject matter expert and then the, now coming to the training side, how did you overcome that challenge? Yeah, that's, it's actually, that's actually such an interesting journey because... Yeah, on one hand, I'm like, I, especially working in new hire technical training, I was the end user just a couple years before I got in this role. Uh, 
uh, being an engineer, I was a subject matter expert. Right. <laughs> and then there's all of this knowledge I'm collecting from people who are actually really subject matter experts in the subjects we're teaching. So it was a really interesting journey. And I think part of what really helped navigate that balance is taking time to understand the culture um, of, of the company, really. So like there's certain... I think a lot of times we underestimate time needed to understand what's important to every constituency, every stakeholder. So for me, getting to know what leaders really cared about, that was really important in helping guide that balance and to guide decision-making. For me, like having experienced new hire technical training, understanding from an end user, like what was important to us about that experience, that was really important. And then, like, from a subject matter expert perspective, a lot of them didn't necessarily have the time to make all these design changes. Um, And that was something really important to them was, hey, like, I want to continue to retain this content in this course, and I still want to bring value, but I don't want to have to be the one to figure out how it all happens. So I think a lot of times we underestimate the importance of understanding what different stakeholders need and what's important to them and then using that as a frame to guide our design. That's great. And, you know, thinking about that too, and, and taking that experience that you had and then fast forwarding now to having, you know, written not only one book, but two books, uh, and more specifically, you know, and I talk about this in the intro about this is my favorite L and D book, your book. Um, so you have designing for modern learning, and you and Lisa, you've already mentioned before, who I know we'll talk a little bit more about now, um, co-authored this incredible book uh, with such a great model that you're introducing to the L&D world. Um, and I quote, you write about how traditional L&T is, quote, typically event, event-based, obligatory, one and done, top-down controlled, out of context, outdated, and scheduled, end quote. Um, so at what point in your L&D career, so we talked about kind of how you started, but then where really where was that shift when you realized that the old school you know quote unquote traditional ways of l and d really needed a facelift man you know probably when i was born you know <laughs> i hadn't experienced l and d at work yet but you know i so i am of the millennial generation and i think um you know generational learning styles aside i do think i have this experience of seeing what digital technology could do at a really, at a younger age, I think Gen Z even more so. And when you get to work, it's, it's definitely like a splash of cold water, um, especially when it's not your full-time job to learn at work. When you're growing up and you're in school, it's your full-time job to learn. So you go around and you're learning in all these different ways um, because we do live in a digital world, you have access to all of that. And then you graduate and you go to school or you show up to work. And sometimes there are still organizations that don't even have an onboarding program and you don't even have your laptop ready when you show up. And it's such a shift. And then to, to talk about metrics like ramp time, um, uh, sorry, time to productivity when you start as a new hire and you're just like, okay, but, all the basics are missing. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. like I don't have different ways to learn. I have to wait around for your onboarding event to happen. No wonder there's no time to productivity happening um, that you would want. 
so it's just there was so much low-hanging fruit right from the get-go and today that was okay so you know dating myself that's obviously been time now right that's when that was like 13 years ago obviously stuff has changed since then but unfortunately we're still pretty bound by this idea of L&D owning delivery of one and done types of events or curricula that must be followed in a start and stop, you know, clear sequence. When a lot of times the way learning actually happens is by trusting the learner to choose what they need to go where they need um, and to give them options. So I think that's a really big shift. And, and yeah, I, I don't know about what I, I just, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, no, I mean, it seems like it was always an intuition. And it probably goes back to even having an engineering background of problem solving and recognizing like, this isn't right. You know, from the get go, you know, this is this traditional way of doing things doesn't seem, you know, to be the best way and the best solution forward. So I, want, I wonder if your engineering background and just that, that problem solving, you know, intuition that you have is what, why you said it, no, well, since I was born. <laughs> Yeah, we tend to be really big systems thinkers in, in engineering and, and meaning that we tend to look at a problem holistically and like from a big view rather than getting like a lot of a lot of times you can experience a detail and then just think about solving that detail. Yeah, that's not how engineers work. We yeah. see the detail and then we're like, oh, what's the whole context it's sitting in? And then we're like, wait a second. <laughs> so, yeah. Awesome. So. You talked a little about Lisa already, um, and I want to give you opportunity to talk about the learning cluster design model. Um, so talk about the model itself and then really what inspired you and Lisa to create a new model for our industry. Yeah, sure. So, you know, for those of you who are just getting into L&D, you're going to learn that just like every other field, there are models that help you do your work or frameworks or methodologies that help you get the work done. Um, and in this case, right, the work of L&D is to really design experiences that help learners learn. And um, what we, what, so Lisa, my, my colleague who I met when I started my training manager job, we stayed in touch over all this time. And about five years ago, um, ATD actually asked us to solve a problem, which is, hey, can you design a workshop around the modern learner? Um, of course, like I just said, we both kind of had this engineering mind. She's also actually a chemical engineer. And we looked at that detail of a modern learner and pretty quickly realized that, no, what this is about is modern learning. In the past, um, in our historic traditional L&D models, most of those were built, you know, actually our original models were built 50 plus years ago. Um, back in World War II timing and back when manu mass manufacturing was just beginning. And so they centered around how do we design um, one curricula or class and how do we do that well? That's kind of the base assumption underlying pretty much every single L&D model. We've benchmarked over 35 now. Um, even more modern models like Agile for Learning, Design Thinking, and they all kind of have this fundamental assumption that we're designing one thing. And that's where Lisa and I, we immediately saw that there's a, a change that's happened. 
And it's, it's the same experience I had when I joined the workplace. It's that learners today, people today learn through many different means, when and where, many different times and places. And it's not just about this one and done event. But we as L&D really don't have a model to help us design multiple learning, what we call learning assets, whether that's a class, a video, an e-learning, multiple learning assets for a particular problem. So that's what learning cluster design is all about. We call, instead of de developing a class or a course, we believe that L&D's new product is to develop a learning cluster. Um, a learning cluster is a set of assets that surround the learner. Um, that's based on assets across the flow of work, when, where, how learners uh, want and need to learn. And so that is essentially um, the premise behind the model. It comes with five actions. Each action has a tool. And all of these actions are geared towards how can we design the best set of assets um, for a particular problem. That's awesome. And so thinking about, you know, most people listening to this podcast are new to training. So they might have, you know, a little bit of experience. They might have been a subject matter expert or similar to you kind of moved into that role within, within their organization, or they're looking for a career change within L&D or to get into L&D. So how can someone who is brand new to L&D or someone just starting or looking to transition how can they, or what would you recommend would be a great way for them to start to apply the model? Yeah, so, you know, first just getting a fundamental grounding in it. So if you are someone who is, say, trying to break into L&D, I think the model is a great thing to have on your resume because it really shows that, hey, I'm really thinking about what's cutting edge for L&D, which if you look anywhere about L&D blogs, you'll constantly see the terms, how can we be across the flow of work? How can we be more relevant? How can we tailor things for our learners? Um, how can we uh, design in a remote work environment? These are all things that learning cluster design helps solve for. So, you know, from a cutting edge L&D perspective, it's really something I would suggest looking into. And, and you can do that by reading the book. We have a workshop as well. Um, where you can actually practice applying the model. And, you know, if you're already in this industry and you already have a role and you're just getting started, you might find that you already have other models that are being used at your workplace. And the great thing about the LCD model is that it plays really nice with other models. <laughs> we see it more as a umbrella model. Um, like I said, all the, all the other models, they tend to focus on designing one, what we would call learning asset. And eventually, you know, once you've figured out which um, multiple assets you're going to design, you then have to design each asset. So it's great because as you're onboarding to models that your company is currently using, you can also make your mark, bring something new, um, also kind of also avoid some bad habits we now have from traditional L&D, which is kind of being locked into one and done thinking. Um, by taking some time to get grounded in the model. That's awesome. I think for me, having taken your workshop and been a participant in it too, I think what's so great about the model and thinking about people who are just transitioning in and the word I hear a lot from my clients when they're transitioning is overwhelm, that there's just so much to learn. And I think me personally, what I've experienced from the model is that, yes, 
applying all five actions is ideal. And that's, you know, ultimately how you're going to get this really great learning cluster that's meaningful as well as impacts the business and uh, changes on the job performance. But at the same time, what's also really great about it is that you can do bits and pieces at a time. So if your organization's not ready, if you're not ready, uh, that there's still things that you can do within the model uh, without having to apply the whole thing all at once. So I think for me, that was a big takeaway uh, when I took the, the workshop is being able to say, wow, okay, the organization I'm working with may not be ready for all of these, but I can still apply you know, the first three and get a better result than if I didn't do anything at all. So for me, that was a big takeaway. Do other people have that same takeaway? Yeah, definitely. I think being able to know that the model is flexible is really, really helpful. I think speaking to the point around overwhelm, I think it also really helps that this model is very comprehensive and intuitive. Like a lot of times when people, we have had tons of people who have no L&D background um, join our workshop. And when they do, they're just like, this just makes sense. You mean L&D doesn't always do things this way? <laughs> so we get that kind of reaction because it's so aligned with how people learn today. Um, so I think that can cut through the overwhelm a lot and it brings together a lot of the other models that are out there um, into one kind of comprehensive umbrella. So you can actually then get have a context to plug in like, oh, okay, well, I heard about design thinking. Okay, I heard about Addy. Here's where that belongs in my overall emerging point of view um, of L&D. And by the way, like that, that last thing I'm saying, I think is really important for new folks to pay attention to is, you know, as you're in this learning mode, create your own point of view on what L&D's job is, what, what you think um, is needed to deliver a good design, to make a good design, to facilitate a great experience. Um, really crafting your own point of view is so important and being aware of that because you have your own background you're bringing to this work. And um, by like intentionally shaping your point of view, you can become um, just really aware of what it, you know, what's your go-to, what's your standard approach to doing this work. And you can always then explain it to someone else. So that's it's, it's that's, really helpful. That's yeah, that's incredible advice, which actually it's interesting because my, my last question to you um, is what advice do you have for people who are looking to transition into L&D for the first time? And then what advice do you have for people who are new to their L&D role? So in addition to what you just said, uh, which is incredible advice, uh, what advice do you have for people who are looking to get into L&D or new to it? So if you're looking to get into L&D, I really suggest my advice to you is to not use the words I don't have any background in this or I don't have any formal background in L&D. Um, I can't tell you the number of times I've heard someone shoot themselves in the foot <laughs> by saying that. Yep. And it's completely unnecessary. So many people in L&D came from non-L&D backgrounds. You're definitely not the only one. Um, and, you know, if you have studied L&D, again, like there's no need to say, I don't have any work experience in L&D. It's just not helping you. Right. <laughs> Definitely keep focusing on your strengths and what's transferable. Um, for someone who is just starting out in their role, uh, I really want to bring back a, a piece I said earlier. Get to know 
your culture, get to know your stakeholders. Spend that those early days really listening and understanding what are the political and cultural dynamics that get in the way of L&D success, um, that help empower L&D success. You might find some champions in your leadership team that in those early days that you can then use ongoing and leverage to help support you know, an investment in a program or a new way of thinking about a program or um, you know, just implementation in general. Uh, and then you might find other folks that you realize, okay, I need to step back and understand what their priorities are so I can navigate you know, tensions better. Um, because l and is usually not the main focus of a business, right? It's a supporting function. So ultimately realizing your first job is to support is so important. So um, yeah, in your early days, get to know those folks in addition to forming your point of view. That's awesome. I know in the book too, you talk, you and Lisa both write about and talk about the, uh, the stakeholders talking to them, questions to ask them, uh, making sure that you know, you're aligned with their goals as well as the goals of being able to change that on the job performance. So I think you guys really create a great uh, framework of that inside the book. So where can people connect with you? So they want to learn more about you. They want to connect with you. Uh, where should we send them to? Yeah, uh, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, I basically respond to every single invite I get. Uh, so I'm sure Sarah can, can share my LinkedIn, but there's only one me on the planet, <laughs> so I'm sure you'll be able to find me. Um, yeah, that's probably the best way to connect with me. Okay, awesome. So I'll go ahead and I'll link uh, in the show notes the uh, link to get to your LinkedIn. I'll also put the link for the book. So if anyone's looking for a copy of Designing for Modern Learning, I'll put that link in there as well. Um, and then also, I know you're offering workshops and um, how often are you offering those and where can people find out more information about attending one of your awesome workshops? Yeah, so we're doing the workshops every quarter. Um, so we have one coming up in January. And uh, I guess not to date this podcast, but you can see it basically happening every quarter on our website, uh, www.learningclusterdesign.com. Um, and then if you have a team, and even though you're new, if you want to be like, hey, I, I think this would be great for our entire team to go through, you can always message me and I can put you in touch with my colleagues to, to start conversations in that direction. Awesome. I'll put the link for that in the show notes too, as well as the link to sign up for your weekly newsletter. I know that you send one of those out. I get it every single week and I think people would really love to get a copy of that too. So Crystal, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. I know a lot of people are going to get a lot from this episode and hopefully we'll have you back on uh, in the future talking more about designing for modern learning. Thank you so much, Sarah. This was so fun. I had so much fun talking to Crystal. She is such a leader and a change maker in the L&D world. So I hope you got a lot out of this episode too. I'd love to hear what resonated with you, what stood out for you. Um, and again, you can connect with Crystal on LinkedIn at Crystal Kadakia. I've linked that in the show notes. I've also put the link to her book, Designing for Modern Learning Beyond Addie and Sam. So you can pick up a copy of that. I put the links to her workshop, which I've actually taken myself and can vouch that it is incredible. It's an incredibly immersive two-week experience uh, that you get to spend. You get one-on-one -on -one coaching with Crystal and you dive deep into her OK LCD model. And then lastly, I put the link to sign up for her newsletter, which goes out every single week, has tidbits, um, and she also has a modern learning community too that you can learn more about there. So I hope, again, this episode resonated with you. I really enjoyed having Crystal on and I can't wait to 
to hear what you guys all thought. See you next week.